Now, scripture today is in Acts 2, 1 through 4. The title of it is The Holy Spirit Comes to Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the word of the Lord. Since I have a son who is in college in Texas, I like to read a little history of Texas and came across something interesting recently. In the Permian Basin of West Texas during the Depression, there was a man named Ira Yates who owned a sheep ranch. But it was during the Depression, and he was not able to make his mortgage payments, and even as those sheep were grazing on those rolling hills of West Texas, he wondered every day how he was going to pay the bills. In fact, his family was on government subsidy. They could barely pay for food and for clothing. And he wondered, how am I going to survive here? We're just going to go under. And then a seismographic group came along that was affiliated with an oil company and said, do you mind if we just try drilling in one little place? He said, sure, fine, go ahead. Couldn't hurt. Well, they went down 1,100 feet and they struck a gusher. That first day, they yielded 80,000 barrels of oil. They tried other places, and they yielded twice that amount. They did a study 30 years later of what became known as Yates Pool, and they were averaging with all of their drilling sites uh, over 125,000 barrels a day. Now, I find this very interesting. Mr. Yates had purchased uh, the mineral rights on the day that he purchased the land, not knowing he would ever gain from that. And yet, here's a guy who's living literally on government relief, and he's a multimillionaire, and he doesn't even realize it. Multimillionaire living in poverty. The problem is he didn't know the oil was there, even though it was his, and he owned it, and it was a part of who he was. Well, I wonder if some Christians live in spiritual poverty. You know, we are entitled to the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, But we are not aware, some of us, that that is our birthright. It's that spirit that binds us together, as we sang a moment ago. It's that spirit that empowers us, guides us, really gathers us together as church. And speaking of church, this really applies not just to individual believers, but to the church as a whole. The church is entitled to the powers of the spirit. We need to be aware of that collective spiritual birthright that you and I share as the spirit empowers us, shapes us, shapes how we worship and how we reach out to people. We need to tap into that and unleash it to the world. It was St. Augustine who talked about how vital the Holy Spirit is to the church day in and day out. He said, what the soul is to the human body, the Holy Spirit is to the body of Christ, his church. Let me say that again. What the soul is to the human body, the Holy Spirit is to the body of Christ, his church. So let's review when the Spirit gave birth to the church. It was just read. Let me go back for just a moment and read the first three verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. 
Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, notice that it says it was a loud sound. We don't know if it was the blowing of a wind. It was a sound that sounded hurricane-like, apparently. So it was a loud sound. And then verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, keep in mind, it doesn't say it was a literal fire. It was something that seemed like fire. We don't know exactly what it is, but that's not important. What they were signs of was signs of the power and glory of God coming from heaven in a profound way and touching the lives of these disciple believers and instigating what we call the church. The wind and the fire pointed to the church. Well, what's it like to be a church of wind and fire? What's it like to be a church that really does tap into the work of the Holy Spirit day in and day out? And I'm not talking about us individually, but also collectively. What does it look like to be a church of wind and fire? Well, first of all, the church of wind and fire is a praying church. Now, many people want to say, duh, we already know that. But so important, so important. Prayer was vital to the birth of the church. I appreciate the way Jim Cimbala uh, talked about it in his wonderful book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He says... Uh, that the Christian church was not born in a clever sermon, but in a prayer meeting. And that's the truth. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, what were they doing as they were anticipating the coming of the Spirit that Jesus had promised to them earlier on in chapter 1? Look at verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer. All of the disciples gathered together constantly in prayer. It wasn't because of a special program. It wasn't because of some fine, eloquent sermon. It's because people got together and prayed. Just this last uh, Tuesday, uh, Caleb shared in our staff meeting about a wonderful worship service he had about, was it three weeks ago? Is Caleb here? can't remember if Caleb's out. He's on vacation. No excuse. Um, but he talked about, I guess it was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, he worshiped at Truvine. He and Rebecca went down there, and he talked about how amazing a service it was. He said it started out just like ours, kind of an organized flow. But then Pastor Ralph got up and asked, does anybody need prayer? And instantly three hands shot up, and they each shared very openly and transparently, very vulnerably, uh, struggles that they were having. And so people gathered around each one of them after they testified as to their struggles, and they laid hands on them and prayed over them. Well, then some other folks raised their hands and said, you know, I have this struggle. I'm struggling with going back to my addiction. I don't know if my husband is going to come back home. I, you know, all these things that Pastor Ralph, as you know, deals with with people every day in a place that's so much, much more difficult than where you and I live. And he said it just wound up being this service where nearly everybody in the service said, I need prayer now. And people would shuffle over to that person and they would hear their confessions and pray over them. Uh, toward the very end, even Pastor Ralph uh, and, and his dear wife Kathleen said, here are some things we're struggling with. Here's where we need prayer. And so people shuffled over and, and laid hands on them and prayed on there. And, and Caleb said it was one of the most powerful services I've ever been a part of. Oh, but it went against the, 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 the liturgical flow that had been set up. Yeah, that's fine. You know, sometimes the great moments of worship that you can have is when two or more gather together and simply pray. I wonder what it would be like if suddenly I said, you know, who needs prayer in here at Brookwood Baptist Church, even though we have our bulletin and our order of worship? What if we did that? And somebody said, I confess that I'm struggling with this, or I need prayer for this, or I'm frightened about this, or I'm confused about this, or I have this decision to make. I'm struggling with finances. Would we be willing to pray over that person? Now, we're not going to do that. Don't worry. But I want us to consider, are we enough of a praying church? 
Are we enough of a praying church? I mean, oftentimes we'll gather together a group that's being commissioned to go on a mission trip, and we come up here and pray over them. We prayed over Larry Dennis, who's back from Mongolia, said he had a fantastic mission trip there. And we've done that with other folks, construction, mission, Appalachian Trail, all those. We always do that. Do we do enough of that? I know in the deacons' uh, meetings, we have this wonderful thing uh, that Charles has reinstituted where we have a member of our ministerial staff come and share what's going on with their ministries and in their lives, and then we gather together, lay hands on them, pray over them. I think that's great. I love how at deacons' meetings, uh, really, (laughs) the high point for me and for most of us is when we gather to pray toward the end. And and I think we started that when Greg Womack was, was chair of deacons, and it's just so wonderful to do that, and it's a powerful, powerful moment. It feeds the ministers who were there in a profound way. Uh, it's been hard lately to have enough time to do that or put in the time that we've done in the past, and that is not Charles's fault. We've just had a lot of stuff to work on. But I hope we can do that even more. But what if, you know, even over the summer, you know, when things are a little more uh, lax and loose in certain ways, what if we, you know, were to send out an email or one of these new phone things, which I guess we have figured out now, and, and, and said, told people, you know, in, in the chapel tomorrow night at 7, we're going to have just an open prayer time. You know, nothing radical, just getting together and praying for each other, for our church, for other matters related just to the church worldwide, people who are being persecuted, people who are facing grave injustice because of their faith, you know, people in the armed forces. I mean, that whole thing. I wonder if we could institute something like that where along the way, as the Spirit leads us, we would do more prayer here. I'd like for us to really consider that and pray about it, and I'm going to bring it up with the deacons and see where that, that goes. Because that kind of prayer can make a difference. Wonderful story I read recently in 1949 about George and Elizabeth Wood. They founded a church. They, they were Americans. They went and planted a church in 1949 in China, but the government forced them to leave. At the time, they had 200 people there, but they had to leave, and they figured, well, it's over. But they did give the mantle over to a guy named Pastor Mung, who was a local. And Pastor Mung was not an experienced pastor, but you know, they had to leave, and they went back to the, uh, to the United States just heartbroken that they couldn't develop the ministry in this church. They both passed on in 1985, never knowing what happened to that church, assuming that it probably fizzled out. Three years later, in 1988, George Jr. took a trip to China to find uh, Pastor Mung, and he found Pastor Mung and his wife, who were now in their 80s, and they sat down, and, and uh, you know, keep in mind that for 29 years, that church had been oppressed by the Chinese government. They did everything they could to extinguish that church, just to squelch it. Pastor Meng himself was in prison for nine years just because of his faith. He was never allowed to preach, by the way. He would just pray with them, never was allowed to preach. But he would do like they did at Pastor Ralph's service and just pray with each other and for one another. He finally was let out in 1985, three years before of uh, George Jr. went to visit him. Well, they, the three of them sat down and George said, well, how is the church doing? Does it still exist? You know, when Pastor Mung got out of church, there were only 30 people who were really active members, many of them uh, a lot older because they had been in attendance for years before. They asked Pastor, Pastor Mung, or George asked Pastor Mung, you know, how many are there now? Well, Mrs. Mung stood up, went over, and got this uh, cardboard roll that was held together by yarn, and she handed it to George, and George started flipping through it, and on every page there were 20 names, and it had their gender, their occupation, their address, and he kept going through it, and and it was like 20 on each page, and it kept going and going, and he said, well, who are all these people? And they said, those are the baptized believers through this ministry. He said, well, how many are there? He said, 1,500. 
said, how could that be? This church was supposed to die. The government was oppressing it. How could that be? And he asked Pastor Mung, Pastor Mung, how did this happen? And Pastor Mung smiled and shared his secret for church growth. Believe it or not, it wasn't a program. And it wasn't his charismatic preaching. It wasn't anything else other than this. He smiled and said, oh, well, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we pray a lot. That's what he said. He said, more than anything, we pray. I never was allowed to preach, but we would gather together and pray. Pastor Mung died in 2006 at the age of 96. When he passed, the number of baptized believers that came through that church is 15,000. True story. The Church of Wind and Fire is a praying church, and it's also a parish church. Now, what do I mean by that? That sounds redundant. A parish is a church. Sometimes a church is called a parish. What do I mean by that? If you read Acts chapter 2, verse 1 again, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were a parish. If you study the ancient Greek word from where we get the word parish, it means this, literally, a regular meeting together of neighbors or of fellow sojourners who share the same journey. Let me read that again. A regular meeting together of neighbors or of fellow sojourners who share the same journey. They're gathered in one place and they continue to gather in one place. (laughs) Now, I know it's Memorial Day weekend. In fact, that's a real testimony to you guys because we ran out of bulletins. I guess we didn't think we were going to have this many. Oh, we have little faith. Please forgive us. Uh, Come lay hands on me and pray for us later on. But uh, that's great. But it is Memorial Day weekend. We're at the cusp of the summer. A lot of us are going to be in and out a whole lot. You know how summer is around here as far as attendance goes. And that's, that's okay, but let me just say, I hope that you will make it a spiritual discipline to gather here whenever you can in one place and be the parish that God has called us to be. Why? Because we want to have the numbers up in the bulletin? No. Because being in here is a corporate confession to the rest of the world about who we are, whose we are, what we believe, whom we worship, and whom we serve. Now, is that so critical right now? I think so. You know, we are in a world and an age now we're going to church and ministering through the church seems unworthy of people's times and commitment. Recently, I read an interview with uh, Bruce Beresford. He is a well-known Australian film director. Anybody ever see uh, Driving Miss Daisy? Uh, uh, Tender Mercies, an older movie with Robert Duvall. He directed those, another, uh, uh, Breaker Moran is another one he directed. This interviewer asked him, what was the most difficult film you ever shot? And he said it was a film called Black Robe. And they said, well, what was so difficult about it? He said, well, it was a story of these French Jesuit missionaries who were, mission, uh, who were ministering to Indians in Quebec. And they asked him, well, what was so hard about it? He said, well, it was difficult because of the bitter cold that winter that we shot it on site in Quebec. He said it was kind of difficult to keep the historical accuracy correct. He said, but what was really difficult and what made me want to almost give up on the movie was this. It was in making the priest's missionary obsession believable to film goers today. And the interviewer said, what do you mean? And let me just read the quote. This is what the director said. These missionaries had an obsession with getting people into heaven. This, con- this is a concept few people these days take seriously. My job was to convince the audience that this is important. Now, friends, that's sad. That is so sad. That is so tragic. We're living in an era and an age. We're getting people into heaven. <laughs> it's something we need to convince people about, about how important it is. Getting people into heaven is not in vogue. You know what the end thing is right now, at least in American culture? It's folks who are, have, have you heard this phrase, spiritual but not religious? Anybody heard that? 
Uh, the Pew Foundation just did this huge, massive study focusing a lot on people who are spiritual but not religious. They're spiritual, but they don't want to commit to the church. I really appreciate this response to <laughs> that whole movement of spiritual but not religious. This may be offensive to some people. I don't know, but I'm going to read it. It's a response reflection upon the spiritual but not religious people by a woman named Lillian Daniels. She's a minister with the United Church of Christ. I'm just going to read it. I appreciate it. I hope you do. I hope you're not offended by it. She says this, on airplanes, I dread the conversation with the person who finds out that I'm a minister and wants to use the flight time to explain to me that he is, quote, spiritual but not religious. Such a person will always share this as if it was some kind of daring insight unique to him, bold in its rebellion against the religious status quo. Next thing you know, he's telling me that he finds God in the sunsets. These people always find God in the sunsets. And in walks on the beach. Sometimes I think these people never leave the beach or the mountains. What with all the communing with God they do on hilltops, hiking trails, and did I mention the beach at sunset yet? Like people, and she says this, like people who go to church don't see God in a sunset. Like we are these monastic little hermits who never leave the church building. How lucky we are to have these geniuses inform us that God is in nature. As if we don't hear that in the Psalms, in the creation story in Genesis, and throughout our deep tradition. Being privately spiritual but not religious just doesn't interest me. There is nothing challenging about having deep thoughts all by one's self. What is interesting is doing this work in community where people might call you on stuff or, heaven forbid, disagree with you. Where life, get, where life with God gets rich and provocative is when you delve deeply into a tradition that you did not invent yourself. Thank you for sharing, spiritual but not religious sunset person. You are now comfortably in the norm for self-centered American culture. Right smack in the bland majority of people who find ancient religions dull but find themselves uniquely fascinating. Can I switch seats now and sit next to someone who has been shaped by a mighty cloud of witnesses instead? Can I spend my time talking to someone brave enough to encounter God in a real human community? Because when this flight gets choppy, that's who I want by my side, holding my hand, saying a prayer and simply putting up with me, just like we do in church. And then she closes with a prayer. Dear God, thank you for creating us in your image and not the other way around. I love that. Now, that could be offensive to some people, but I think she makes an important point. Folks, I know the church is not perfect. I know the church is full of hypocrites just like you and me, and there's always room for one more. That's what we tell people. But that doesn't give us the way of not giving our devotion to the bride of Christ. That doesn't mean squelch the Holy Spirit because the church is full of broken, wounded, imperfect, hypocritical people. We're called to be together in one place and let the Spirit be our guide and bind us together in worship and not apologize for it. I get a little tired of people who just use that as an easy out. who say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. In some way, shape, or form, they say that. That does not mean that we have license, number one, to let the Spirit be squelched. Number two, that does not mean that we need to dumb down our faith or our theology It doesn't mean that we need to cater to people who want a cheaper form of faith. Reach out to them? Sure. Listen with a sympathetic ear, especially if they've been wounded by the church? Absolutely. But we do not do them any service as they are called seekers, as they are seeking. 
But we do not do them a service at all if we fail to let them know. Confessing Christ, yes, but this is what it's going to take. And part of what it takes is gathering together as a broken body and confessing that we are a broken body of hypocrites and not apologizing for that. The Spirit calls us to gather regularly so we can tell the rest of the world, here is the alternative, here is the way. And we need not give up on that. The Church of Wind and Fire, then, is a praying church, and it's a parish church. And finally, it's a possessed church. I know I had alliteration today. I just felt like a Baptist preacher today. But it's also a possessed church. Why is this important? Because some people feel like they possess the Holy Spirit. And they act in a way that they possess it. No, the Holy Spirit possesses you when you yield in faith to him. Vast difference. There's an important phrase that we often brush over in verse 4. It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, that is, languages, as the Spirit enabled them. As the Spirit enabled them. In other words, as they allowed themselves to be possessed by the Spirit. Sometimes we want to lead ourselves instead of yield to the Spirit and let the Spirit lead. Think of these veterans whom we celebrate today. You know, they yielded in loyalty, not to themselves, but in loyalty to their country, and many of them have sacrificed. You know, before Pentecost, we paid a big price because of our pride in wanting to lead ourselves. Do you remember in Genesis 11 about the Tower of Babel? Everybody was speaking a common language, and they were so proud of themselves. Oh, let's build a tower that goes really high so we can brag on ourselves. What did God do? He shut that down. He said, you know, I'm going to confuse their languages. Let's humble them a bit, and we deserved it. But thousands of years later, at Pentecost, God reverses it. He says, you know what? I want them to know now how much I love them, and we need to start the church, and I'm going to reverse all this. I'm going to move it from being something that is confusing to something that is clear so that everyone can understand everyone else's language. And the early church responded to that love by sharing with one another, sharing with one another, because they were possessed by the Spirit. Now, this moves us toward our theme for this year. Let me read chapter 2, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. Well, that sounds like communism. Uh, I really appreciated something Rick Warren had to say about this because he had just read something where a scholar said, you know, the early Christians basically were communists. And I just want to comment on that because it really gets to an important point about being possessed by the Spirit. He said, no, that's not true. But, but it's not capitalism either. He says, capitalism basically says what's mine is mine, and I'm going to do with it what I want. He said, communism is what's yours is mine, and I can give it and redistribute it however I want. It's kind of like forced charity. He said, Those, that's what capitalism is, that's what communism is. But he said, you know what Christianity is? What's mine is really God's, but I'm sure willing to share it with you because it's his anyway. Doesn't that come to our theme of this year? Which what? It's all his. It's our theme. Christianity is neither capitalism or communism. It's saying that what is mine really belongs to God. I don't know, owe anything. I really don't own, own anything. Therefore, I need to be generous and sacrificial because it's all his anyway. That's what believers possessed by the Spirit are all about. So the church of wind and fire is a praying church and a parachurch, and yes, a possessed church. And you might say, oh, that's scary to do. That's uncomfortable. You know, it's scary to have a platform out there and be led by the Spirit. Well... Has anybody been watching the NBA Finals? Last night, Stephon Curry basically dismantled uh, the Houston Rockets. It was a great game. Anybody see it? It's a great game. Um, and I, I had plenty of devotion time. I did work on the sermon, too. I just want you to know that. 
But Stephon Curry, I did not know until the other night when Jody Martin sent me an email that Stephon Curry is an outspoken Christian. Did you know that? I did not even know, and I'm embarrassed that I did not know. And I read this wonderful article that Stephon himself wrote that Jody had sent me. And it was so cool. He talks about how he writes Philippians 4.13 on the, on the bottom side of the tongue of his shoe, which is what I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All of his hand motions when he you know, makes a basket, I don't remember them, but, but that, he said those were inspired by my faith in Christ. And I'm giving glory to God when I do that. I did not realize that. One other thing he wrote, though, it was so cool because he talks about, I remember as if it was yesterday when I was in fourth grade and I understood the gospel and I gave my life to Christ. And then he said this, and I thought this was great, and I'm going to close with this because I think it's a great quote. He said, the Holy Spirit is moving through our locker room in a way I've never experienced before. It's allowing us to reach a lot of people, and personally, I'm just trying to use this stage to share how God has been a blessing to my life and how he can be the same in everyone else's. Now, this is a guy... He has a wide platform, and I know you might think that's a luxury, but people are going to be waiting for him to trip and fall. People are going to be waiting to see if he wavers at all. You know, he is a broken, wounded person like you and me, and he might do that. But thanks be to God, he is letting the Holy Spirit use him in a professional basketball locker room with guys who I'm sure could be difficult to reach. He's daring to do that. Will you do the same? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, guide us in all that we are, and may we not apologize for being guided by you, by being the church that you have called us to be. Help us to be patient with people who want a cheap faith, who want to uh, follow what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Lord, help us to unabashedly share the expectations, the demands of taking a stand for you, and at the same time be full agents of grace. More than anything, O oh God, help us to yield ourselves over to you and be possessed by your spirit that we might truly be more the church you called us to be. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.